I'm Anushka Dukas and welcome back to My Life in Seven Charms. For me, there are so few things which can evoke a memory like a tiny, detailed charm. In this new series, I'll be meeting seven extraordinary women and hearing their stories through this very special 18-karat gold biography. In this episode, we'll be meeting best-selling writer Jung Chang. You know, I always loved writing when I was a child. But when I was growing up in China in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, it was impossible even to dream of becoming a writer. And then in 1988, my mother came to stay with me. For the first time, she told me the stories of her life and stories of my grandmother, her relationship with my father. And after she left, I wrote Wild Swans and I became a writer. Writer, historian, educator, and someone who shone a light for millions of people around the world onto the recent history of China, Jung was born 14 years before the Chinese Cultural Revolution began, her family experiencing hardships that you and I could only imagine. Her memoir, Wild Swans, telling the story of growing up under Mao's regime, went on to sell more than 13 million copies worldwide. Yet her success has come at personal cost. Her books banned in her homeland, to which she is unable to return, separating Jung from her beloved mother. I'm truly humbled to hear her story firsthand. I'm delighted to welcome the truly inspirational Jung Chang to My Life in Seven Charms. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And, and thank you for making these wonderful things out of the, the objects, um, each of which reminds me of a period of my life and very close, very close to my heart. I'm so pleased that you were excited by the drawings. Um, so I think, why don't we start with, the, with your first charm? I haven't done it in a particular order, but um, I thought your first charm was a magnolia the magnolia flowers. And when I asked you, you were very specific about this charm because you said they've got to be closed magnolia flowers. And so I've drawn it. um, I see it as kind of the stem being yellow gold Mm -hmm. and the petals are made in white gold with white diamond pave, so tiny little diamonds all over it. And inside where you can't see from the drawing, but there'll just be two, two or three little, little tiny yellow stamens, which the magnolia has. But the whole thing will kind of move as it, as it would on a tree. Tell me, tell me a little bit about why you chose this, this charm. Well, magnolia is connected with my childhood memories of my grandmother. My grandmother really basically brought us up because my parents were always busy working. And um, she always had a magnolia, unopened magnolia in her hair. Oh, lovely. And in those years, in the 19, late 1950s and 1960s, China was a very regimented puritanical society and everybody was wearing this Mao uniform, um, this drab cloth. Nobody wore any flowers. 
And I noticed that people were looking at her, and and she was a little self conscious, but you know she was also a very beautiful woman. And then I would remember that when we came back home, and my grandmother would take off her magnolia flower and put it in a bowl of、um, water to refresh it, and then she would soak her feet, her crushed. And bound feet into a big bowl of hot water, um, and、uh, you know this old Chinese tradition that tortured women for a thousand years. Yeah, my grandmother was one of the last generation to had to have her feet crushed and bound, and she said,、um, you know, people say you would you would get over the pain. You never get over the pain, and so my image of my grandmother was this mixture of、um, of beauty、um, and pain. It's so hard to conceive of that now in this in in our day to conceive that that actually really happened. It's just extraordinary. But you,、uh, I mean, I love the idea of her wearing these flowers in her hair. Do you think? Do you think that was a kind of act of defiance on her part, or was it? What do you think made her do that? Yeah, it was her way of being、um, defiant. She was. She was deeply unhappy、um, about what was happening around us. You know, in this great famine in the nineteen. Early 1960s, I remember when I was a child. I heard her talking about it and expressing, you know, loathing for what was happening, because she had a best friend who was actually the maid of our family, and but she, the maid's family was in the countryside, and they all died of starvation except、yeah. her. I remember saying, hearing things from her that was completely different from the party line which I heard in the school. The other thing about my grandmother, she was a concubine. When she was fifteen, she was basically given by her father to this warlord general to be his concubine,、um, and to be the concubine in the communist days. A concubine, you know, is a victim of that old society because my grandmother was married to my grandfather for six days, and he left for six years. Because he had other concubines dotted around China, and he only visited them when he was next in town. And the rest of the time, my grandmother lived as a virtual prisoner in the house he bought for her. And my mother was her only daughter, so my mother was like my grandmother's purpose in life. Um, when my grand, when my mother was one year old, my mother was taken away from her, because by tradition, the blood descendant had to be raised by the proper wife and not by a concubine. So she escaped with my daughter with the help of another sympathetic concubine. 
and all this was on her bound feet. So that was a really oh. quite extraordinary、um, episode in their life. Bravery,、um, huge bravery. And but I also remember my, my grandmother. She really loved beautiful things. I mean, the warlord general, her husband, gave her lots of jewelry because he believed. As a lot of men believed in those days, jewels were the key to a woman's heart. And so, when he went away, still is, isn't it? <laughs> for many people, yes. Well, and she gave he gave her lots of jewelry, and these jewels sustained her not by sentimental value, but the values. I mean, my my grandmother lived. On these, on these things, when he didn't come back, and、uh, she kept some. She kept a jade bracelet and、uh, a ring, and those were not the jewelry given to her by the warlord general, but by her second husband, who was a doctor.、Um, because after my grandmother fled from the general's mansion. With my mother, she went back to Manchuria, which was her home, and there she fell in love with an elderly doctor, and they wanted to get married. But the doctor was many years older, and he had children, grandchildren, even a great grandson, and her, his family. Were against the marriage, and the doctor's eldest son was so furious he shot himself in protest. He didn't mean to die, but he died,、um, and so my it was impossible to live in this big family. So my grandmother, my mother, and Doctor Xia. My step grandfather left and started a life again in another city. So when I was growing up, my grandmother were always always saying to us, "If you have love, even plain cold water is sweet." Do you still have those pieces of jewelry? Yeah, well, in fact, they were confiscated by the Red Guards, but after the Cultural Revolution, they were returned to us. In fact, I have a bracelet and a ring here in London, and、um, so I I was very very close to my grandmother, and her death was this tremendous、um, painful spot in my heart. People say that one of the most wonderful things about jewelry is the story and the narrative that it holds. My goodness, that is quite a story, indeed. Your second charm,、um, I love. I love this. Is the wild kogan grass that you described to me, and each little leaf is individual and it moves. So the outer leaves I've done in white gold, and then on the inside are these white seeds. Again, all moving, made of diamonds. But tell me, I mean, I think I'm right that. This charm was inspired by a kind of really beautiful memory of your mother, and I'd love to, you to tell me more about that. Yes, well, actually, you're also absolutely right. It's the swaying kogan grass um, that um, stuck in in my head.、Um, my mother. We have to start with the beginning of the Cultural Revolution in 1966.、Um, my parents became 
victims of the Cultural Revolution. My father was one of the few who stood up to Mao and protested the Cultural Revolution. So as a result, he was um, uh, arrested, tortured, um, driven insane, exiled to a camp, and also he died prematurely. My mother was under tremendous pressure to denounce my father, but she refused. So as a result, she went through over a hundred of those ghastly denunciation meetings. She was made to kneel on broken glass. She was um, uh, paraded in the streets when ch- where children spat at her and threw stones at her. And in the end, she was exiled to a camp in Xichang, where these white golden kogan grass grew in profusion. And um, at the beginning of the 1970s, I went to the camp to visit my mother. And I so I went to see my mother. I had a basket um, over my shoulder, and in the basket were foods where my siblings and I had saved to give our parents a treat because my father was in another camp. Um, he and my mother were actually quite close. The camps were quite close, but between them were mountains, and they were not allowed to see each other. And so I was—I went to see my mother first, and then I was about to go and see my father. And the day I was about to leave was the Chinese New Year's Day. Um, And um, so my mother was tremendously sad that on this day, which was the day for family reunion, I had to leave. And then we, we, you know, we didn't know when when we would see each other again. And so, but I had to leave. I had to leave for my father's camp because the driver of the truck I had hitchhiked promise to come on that day to pick me up um, because his truck was passing by that road. And um, so my mother walked with me to the roadside um, with the basket of food untouched because she insisted on me taking everything to my father. And so we walked to the roadside and we sat down to wait. Um, It was very sunny. And between the roadside where I was to be picked up by this truck driver, the white golden kogan grass were swaying all around us. And then in the distance, we saw smoke coming out of the roof of my mother's camp. And that was her camp cooking breakfast. And on Chinese New Year's Day, they were having this thing called the Tangyuan, which um, was this round dumplings symbolizing family union. And so when we're waiting for the driver, he didn't come for a long time. And my mother was gripped by anxiety she thought I missed this New Year breakfast, and she insisted on going back to get some tangyuan for me. 
And um, while she was gone, the truck came, and um, and uh, I couldn't keep the driver waiting. So I climbed on the back of the um, to the back of the truck, and I then saw my mother coming, running towards me, the white golden Kogan grass swaying around her and she was wearing a blue scarf that was also flying but she was running because she saw me clambering onto the park Um, but she was running in a careful way that showed me that she didn't want the soup with the dumplings to spill and um, then then I, I had to go and so I, I left, and, um, and years later, my mother told me that she saw me climbing onto the back of the truck, um, and the, the tang yuan, the, soup, the breakfast, dropped from her hand. But she still ran to the spot where we were waiting, um, just to make sure it was um, me who, who, had, who climbed onto the truck. It must have been totally heartbreaking for both of you. And while she was in in the camp, wh- who was looking after you? Were you looking after yourselves? Oh, absolutely. Not only were we looking after ourselves, we were also looking after our parents. I mean, when I was 16, the Cultural Revolution started. Um, You know, my parents were being denounced. They were ill. They were beaten. Basically, I I think I didn't have this sort of teenager period. I was thrown from a childhood straight into adulthood. And my father's ribs were broken. And, you know, my mother was, my mother was new on broken glass. And my grandmother used a, a tweezer to pick out the fragments of the glass uh, from my mother's knees. And I was helping my grandmother, you know, acting like a nurse. I mean, absolutely shocking. It wasn't really childhood, was it? It was a total role, role reversal. Um, and when did she come out of the camp, your mother? She came out of the camp in the early 1970s um, because the political situation changed. People like my parents, their situation sort of changed for the better, and my mother was able to leave the camp, and later my father as well. So they were reunited? Yes, they were in 1973. They were reunited. Yes. Gosh, what a what an what that must have been an extraordinary moment for you as a family. Yes, I mean, I remember when my father first came back. He'd been in the mountains for many years, and in you know in a sort of isolation in a very hostile environment. You know, had to be subjected to denunciations and made to do the the most the heaviest job. And I was also in my father's camp several times. I, I Again, I traveled by myself, you know, to give him, apart from helping him doing some work and physical labor and to give him some company because in those days, um, the love from your family 
was the thing that sustained you. And my father said if it hadn't been for his family, he would have committed suicide long time ago. God, yeah. I mean, how incredibly strong you must have been. Your next charm is, no surprise, three wild swans. <laughs> now, I thought about how to, how to design this. And immediately I thought, well, it, should it be three swans? But actually, I think because of the extraordinary book that you've written, I've designed it as a, a book, which is a locket in yellow gold. It has wild swans um, engraved on the front um, and it would have your name on the spine of the book. And ideally, we'd like to write wild swans in Chinese as well yes. at the uh, underneath. But it will um, it will open and be a locket, so you could put a photograph. I'm imagining that that it would be your grandmother, your mother, and yourself. But that was kind of my interpretation which may not have been what you were expecting. <laughs> it's absolutely wonderful. I mean, it's... Um, and, of course, the, you know, the Chinese character on the cover of Wild Swans means wild swans. Dr. Xia, my step-grandfather, gave my mother this name, um, Wild Swans. Oh, um, oh, really? And then when I was born, my step-grandfather um, said, ah, Another wild swan is born. <laughs> it's a wonderful name. And um, clearly, you come from a very strong line of women. <laughs> but one of the things I wanted to find out from you is, when did you decide or know that you wanted to write? You know, I always loved writing when I was a child. But when I was growing up in China in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, it was impossible even to dream of becoming a writer because in those years, during Mao's incessant political persecutions, nearly all writers were condemned, you know, sent to the gulag, driven to suicide, some were even executed. Even writing for oneself was dangerous. I wrote my first poem on my 16th birthday in 1968. It was in the middle of the Cultural Revolution when books were burned across China. I was lying in bed polishing my poem when I heard the door banging. The Red Guard had come to raid our flat, and if they saw my poem, I would get into trouble and my family would get into trouble. So I had to quickly rush to the bathroom to tear up my poem and flush it down the toilet. And that ended my first venture in writing. Just just going back on that, but you did so many things from, from being a barefoot doctor to electrician to steel worker. But do you always think that writing was in your soul? Well, it was an urge. It was a passion, an urge you couldn't control and you couldn't banish from your head. And um, when I was working as a peasant, um, 
when I was spreading manure in the paddy fields, and when I was checking electricity supplies on top of the electricity poles as an electrician, I was always writing in my head with an imaginary pen. And uh, I was always writing, but I couldn't put pen to paper. And then I came to Britain in 1978. Uh, after Mao died in 1976, and the Cultural Revolution ended. Now, in Britain, I could write, but at that moment, the desire to write left me because I had come to a completely different world. Um, it was like landing on Mars. Um, you know, yes. I, everything was exciting, everything was new, and I just wanted to spend every minute absorbing this new world. And to write for me would be to look backward and inward into a world I wanted to forget all about. So I didn't want to write for 10 years. And then in 1988, my mother came to stay with me. For the first time, she told me the stories of her life and stories of my grandmother, her relationship with my father. And, um, and when she started, she couldn't stop. And she stayed with me for six months. And we talk. She talked every day. When I was out working, she talked into a tape recorder. Um, and after she left, I wrote Wild Swans and I became a writer. And, and Jung, did you find it um, very painful writing it or was it a very cathartic experience? How, how did you find it? I think it was both. Um, on the one hand, it was very painful because I had to recall, you know, particularly, you know, my father's been driven insane in the Cultural Revolution and my grandmother's very painful death. And um, it was very painful. But actually, it changed the pain. Writing enabled me to turn trauma into a form that you can recall, into memory. So I'm actually very lucky because I wrote Wild Swans. And I can now talk to you about my past without too much pain. And this is a luxury a lot of people don't have in China because they are not allowed to talk about the past. And as a result, the trauma has been suppressed. So writing Wild Swans yes. has done me tremendous good. And not to mention that it has brought me closer with my mother. And my mother was very sweet before Wild Swans was published. Just when I was about to feel a bit anxious, you know, how the book would be received and so on. My mother wrote me from China and said, you know, the book might not do well, people might not pay attention to it, but I was not worried because she could see that writing the book had brought us closer together and came to a kind of new degree of understanding and indeed love. I mean, I felt that way too. And so my mother said I had made her a happy woman and that was enough. And um, so I was completely um, serene 
when the book was published. I was not thinking about whether um, it would be successful or not. And of course, as it happened, it was a success. Um, and so that was quite wonderful. Your mother must be so proud. But uh, just, just, just finishing on, on that briefly, are you able to go back, obviously, mm. out of COVID in a normal, in what we don't necessarily know what a normal world is. Are you able to go back and see her? No. Well, the thing is this. Um, when my second book, The Biography of Mao, was published, um, yeah. and I, I lost the freedom to travel to China, and the regime tried to ban me from going to China. But thanks to the help from the British government, I was allowed to go to China for 15 days a year just to see my mother. And that lasted for um, a lot, quite a few years. Mm. But at the moment, China is going backward. It's becoming more repressive than any time since Mao's death. And so going to China, uh, a lot of people say, have become very dangerous. So I yes. I don't know whether I would see my mother again. My mother is, oh my. is coming up to 90 now. And she's her head is still ultra clear. I mean, it's absolutely wonderful because at that age, she's still a tower of strength for me. And she and I have long realized that, you know, we have this is the price we have to pay for me to write books honestly. Um, yes. And so um, I, I think it's, I mean, sadly, you know, it's probably very unlikely I'll see my mother again. Your next charm um, is a window box. Okay. And you said it's a window box with brightly coloured flowers. You can see I've, I've drawn it as a kind of arched window because it's soft and feminine. And the flowers are all different shades of pink sapphires. And, they, and I, I see it in yellow gold um, and the windows white sapphire. So it feels really precious. I love the idea of this window box, and I'm dying to know why you chose a window box. Well, window boxes were the things I wrote back home about in my first letter after I came to London in 1978. And uh, en route from Heathrow, when we when we saw houses, I noticed the window boxes. I was so excited. <laughs> and they, they seemed so beautiful. I mean, you know, as beautiful as your drawing to me then. Because in China, you know how crazy Mao was. He even condemned horticulture. He said cultivating flowers and the grass was a bourgeois habit. Get rid of the gardeners. So when we were children, we had to go out of 
the classroom to remove grass from the school lawn. And I saw flowers disappear from our homes, the vases smashed, no flowers. So then suddenly I saw these window boxes and I was in seventh heaven. And so that was all I wrote home about. (laughs) It's so interesting that that's what you noticed um, on your way from the airport. I love that because in your books, you'll have this ability to really make things very vivid for the for the reader it's just just wonderful well i think yes i think to notice these life's little pleasures signs of beauty it makes life worth living and out of interest are you a gardener do you love your garden love or window garden. do you have window boxes where you're where you are <laughs> not exactly window boxes but an a, an expanded version of window box uh, which is a balcony i love our balcony, of course. I, I, we have a very nice garden where I all sorts of I planted all sorts of things, including lots of bamboo, because I came from the place where there were more hundreds of species of bamboo. There was a place called the Bamboo Forest, and that's where I was born. Um, and so I love that. And in our balcony, we I I was particularly fond of a lemon tree. And I was I just counted this morning. You had twenty-four lemons. Oh my goodness, congratulations. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> I know it was quite was I love that. I mean, they gave me tremendous pleasure, these plants. I love gardens. Your your next charm um is a globe, which is music to my ears because I was I love in fact I wear this globe ah. every day. Oh. I wear this globe. And so the globe I've uh, I've drawn for you um is it's completely round. I kind of seen it as a as the sea being lapis um, of lapis lazuli, and then the continents in yellow gold. And if this was the charm that you were going to choose, we'd probably put a little ruby in the particular place which you found was special for you. It's set in a frame which has got diamonds all the way around the frame, a bit similar to the one I've got. And the idea is that you can spin it really, really fast and it becomes a kind of worry bead for you. But I know why you chose this charm. I think you chose this charm because it represents your travel around the world. Tell, tell me, because I think um, a lot of it is, is you travelled with John, your husband. Yes, yes. After Wild Swans was published, um, I... I was thinking about writing another book, and then Mao seemed to be the obvious subject um, because he dominated my early life and he turned the lives of a quarter of the world's population upside down. And um, my husband, Zhang, Zhang Halliday, is also interested in Mao. So we decided to embark on this project together. We actually divided our research by language. I dealt with the Chinese language sources. And Zhang, well, unfortunately, speaks many languages, so he was landed with the rest of the world. And he, he learned Russian when he was in Ireland, when he was a child. And that was really useful because we spent a lot of time working in the Russian archives. So if you can put any thoughts, Perhaps Moscow is a place because in the 1990s, we were very lucky. Yeltsin opened the archives of the old Soviet Union. 
And that was a treasure trove. And we found so many things about Mao, um, about the communist world. Um, And we just had a riveting time. And we also traveled all over the world and interviewed almost everyone who had interesting dealings with Mao. I mean, one particular person we interviewed was Imelda Marcos. Do you oh remember this uh, yeah. woman? With all Filipino. her shoes. <laughs> and in her um, flat, she had these little shoes, bejeweled little shoes, dotted around the, her apartment. So she had a, a kind of sense of humor. She had a very flirtatious relationship with Mao. Because Mao was a womanizer. And when he met Imelda Marcos, the former Filipino beauty queen, Mao's eyes sparkled. He was nearly blind at that time, but his eyes sparkled. And he picked up Imelda's hand and kissed it. And this was such an incredible scene um, for us living in China at the time, in 1974, because at that time, in the Cultural Revolution, anyone who had any sort of, showed any sign of gallantry, you know, so to speak, would be condemned as bourgeois and being subjected to denunciation meetings. But we saw this in the newsreel in China. I remember the shock at the time. In fact, Mao's photographer was shocked, and he didn't dare to take a photograph. Um, But the newsreel camera was fixed and kept rolling and recorded this this moment. And so we we have a picture of that in our Mao biography. And um, Imelda, uh, when we interviewed her, she batted her um, eyelids furiously at John, and then she <laughs> turned to me and said, um, um, "You know, Western men simply don't understand us Eastern women." And John said, "Have you come across any Western men who understand you?" She said, "Only one person, Richard Nixon." <laughs> It was absolutely. It was well. She did have this um, relationship with Richard Nixon, and uh, you know, before Mao died, the person Mao most wanted to see was Richard Nixon, and uh, so he kept inviting Richard Nixon to China, and he sent Imelda Marcos to America to invite Nixon. Extraordinary. Um, uh, And how did you meet John? We met in London. Um, I think at the time I was working in the 1980s. Um, I was working for a television series about China. And, and Zhang was making a series on the Korean War. And um, we were introduced and John thought I could open doors for him in China. <laughs> but we, <laughs> I, of course, I did, I did nothing of the kind. <laughs> but uh, we, you know, we, uh, let's say, fell in love and we got together. And was it, uh, was it love at first sight? It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it was. But it was pretty soon after that. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
But mm-hmm. after that, I mean, because you, as you said, you spent what ten or twelve years traveling the world to write the book about Mao. I mean, that's a quite an intense relationship to yes, have. You, yes, absolutely. You know, we spent twelve years writing this biography of Mao. For 12 years, we were together all the time. And, oh. you know, we traveled the world. We did research in the archives and in London at home. We worked, you know, separate studies. And at lunchtime, we were together exchanging our discoveries. And um, often, um, you know, even when we went out, we were talking to each other. I mean, it was quite, a, you know, we had a riveting time. But it sounds like what a team. But I guess difficult to to make it, to draw a distinction between kind of the life and work balance or the two are just so intertwined. They were so intertwined. We had the most wonderful time. We were, a, you know, I must say, a, the perfect team. Will you ever write another book together? Uh, <laughs> no, no, I think, well, no, I think then Mao was where our interests um, coins, uh, overlapped. Then I started writing other Chinese figures. John was not that yes. interested in. So I wrote a biography of Empress Dowager Cixi, who was the last great royal ruler of China, who brought medieval China into the modern age. And that brings us quite neatly onto your next charm, which is the boat of purity and ease, because I think that's very much part of why you've chosen that. I was so I was just so struck by by the fact that it's not actually a boat at all. It's a pavilion disguised to look like a boat. Yes. Made of made of wood painted to look like marble. So so I had seen it really as yellow gold um with some with some savorite cabochons in the windows. Um and I see it as a locket, so the bottom will open. And you'll be able to go inside it and look at the detail from from the inside out. That's how I imagine it. But but I tell me tell me more about why you've chosen this charm. Well, it's a magnificent boat um, in the Summer Palace in Beijing, and the Empress Dowager Cixi was always accused of indulging herself in these luxuries at the cost of the country. And of course, it's a complete myth. And, uh, you know, it it wasn't true. And this was relevant to my desire to write about her because gradually from writing Wild Swans, I realized that the image we were taught from history books about the Empress Dowager was very, very different from the real woman. The first thing that struck me was actually about foot binding. And we in China were always taught, given the impression that foot binding was somehow banned by the communists. And then I suddenly realized when I was researching wild swans, it was the Empress Dowager who first banned the foot binding. And this was so different from her image of being this cruel woman who was um, who dragged China behind and who was responsible for all China's troubles. 
she has been maligned for a hundred years, and she is still being maligned. But in fact, she was the first modernizer in China, and she brought China into the modern age. She had been a low-level concubine to the emperor. But after the emperor died, she launched the palace coup in 1861, and she started to change China. I mean, everything modern we have today—electricity, the modern whatever army, trade, diplomacy, schools, language,、uh, women's liberation—everything had started with her. And also, when she started being the ruler of the Chinese Empire, she wasn't even allowed to be face to face with her male officials. She had to sit behind a screen. I mean, it was from that very constrained、um, world, and she changed China in a very non-violent way. I just. I admire her very much through my research. What do you think the position of women in China is today? Out of interest, what, where, do, where, where do women stand in China today? Well, starting from her, I mean, you know, women's liberation has、um, has really taken off in China, and has you know, in many ways, women's positions have improved tremendously. Um, but of course, I mean, in terms of politics, and、um, women, there is still there is still no women in mainland China's political lineup. And one reason was that、uh, I would like to think that it actually speaks well of women, because you need a certain killer instinct to get on top in that. Communist Party system, and、uh, women are basically unsuited. Why?、Well, I think this is to women's credit. Just, just finishing on that. Do you think、um, that women are treated equally to men? Not, not in politics, but in other walks of life now in China. I think yes. I think yes. I think now perhaps the suppression of women is not so much institutional, but from old prejudices.、Um, you know, there was an old saying. Even when I was a child in China, I heard the saying that women have long hair but short intelligence. Um, which later actually encouraged me to grow my hair very long. My、uh, my hair is short now, <laughs> shorter now. I mean, but、uh, until fairly recently, my you know my hair reached my knee,、um, so it was very was going really overboard. <laughs> so, Yung, your last charm.、Um, This is completely fascinating to me. When you told me about this, is is a necklace around a mountain. Now, I actually think rather than me describe this charm first, because I think most people listening to this won't really be able to believe what it is.、Um, I'll describe it once once we've discussed it. I think, but when you told me about it, I had to look it up because I didn't know anything about it. But 
I looked at it on Google Maps mm. and and I saw that it's just this vast piece of landscaping, uh, an act of kind of bending nature to kind of human desires. I mean, extraordinary. But this necklace around a mountain, can you can you tell us about the story behind it? Yes. Well, after Empress Dowager Tsushi, I wrote a book, which is my last book, about the famous Chinese Song Sisters from Shanghai. Um, the book is called Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister. Little Sister Mailing was Madame Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek was the ruler of China before Mao defeated him and drove him to Taiwan. Now, Chiang Kai-shek had started his political career as an assassin, and he had, um, and that's how he got on top. And as a result, he and Mailing, his bride, were pursued by assassins, and some even got into their bedroom. And as a result, little sister Mailing suffered a miscarriage and was never able to have children. Now, Chiang Kai-shek loved his wife and wanted to, to pull her out of depression. So in 1932, he gave her a necklace as a birthday present. But as you mentioned, it's no ordinary necklace because it encircled a whole mountain. Now, what it is, it was he imported these French pine trees and planted them around this mountain like the chains of the necklace. And these French trees color in late autumn in a different way from the local Chinese trees. So they form a distinctive chain. And the jewel of the necklace was a villa with a beautiful green-blue roof which sparkle under the sun, looking like a real jewel. And uh, so this palace was called the Mailing Palace because he dedicated it to his wife. I mean, it's so extraordinary. I I'd encourage everybody to look it up. It feels so very Chinese to me in its scale and beauty and the, just the size of the gesture. Because my experience whenever I've been to China is that everything is massive. I just found it uh, extraordinary. And I also found it extraordinary that, um, that it survived the Cultural Revolution. <laughs> well, the thing is, is, well, for many years, people didn't realize what it was because you need a private plane to fly yes. over it, to, to enjoy it. I mean, of course, Chiang Kai-shek could fly his wife uh, to see it, but nobody was allowed to fly over that mountain. Until fairly recently, I think a film crew or something, I mean, you know, with permission, accidentally discovered yes. it. Um, and then, of course, then from the archives, documents were dug out and the whole history of this extraordinary necklace came to light. It is absolutely incredible. I mean, I, I had seen it. As a, as a kind of circle of Savarite cabochons representing the, the colour of those trees that are the necklace. And then inside to have the palace, as you say, with this different kind of greeny blue tiles on the roof. I, I've kind of used fluorites to do that because they're a soft, 
very soft coloured stone that catch the light in different ways and set in set in yellow gold. I mean, one of my questions is, you've lived here now for over 40 years, I think. And I, I kind of wonder, you've written so, so much. It's, it's been your life as writing about China. How connected do you feel to China now? Well, I, I feel... I mean, connected in the sense that I'm interested. Uh, you know, I wanted to know. I mean, I care about the place. I care about the people. I I feel they've been through so much, um, and really deserve some good life. Um, and my mother lives there, as I said. You know, she's she's nearly ninety, and I have a yes. sister there. I have a brother who lives there. I mean that that's it. I'm very sad that it seemed to be political. It seemed to be, you know, turning backwards. You feel um, it's turning backwards, and uh, and it just I just feel very very sad yes. about that. Do you see your sister, your brother at all? Well, I haven't seen them for some time. But again, you know, um, Skype. Skype. I mean, modern technology. Yes. Uh, yes. That's uh, it. It makes actually makes the meetings quite real. I talk to my sister every other day. Um, what I can say is that I see them. Um, I, I we talk, um, and I don't feel I'm I'm sort of right. cut off from yes. them. How wonderful! And I, I really, you know, we are a very close family. And the Cultural Revolution has wrecked many families um, because, you know, wives or spouses were encouraged or forced to denounce each other and children set upon their parents. And But my family grew closer and that makes me very happy. Well, as you say, very lucky to have these wild swans that you were and are um, absolutely wonderful. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you so much. What an absolutely fascinating um, story to hear about all of these charms. But as a thank you for all your time, um, I would love to make you one of these charms. And um, I'd be really, I'd love you to tell me which one you would like. Um, and whilst you're thinking about that, when somebody in the future um, finds this charm bracelet, I just wonder what you would like this bracelet to say about you. What would be the legacy that, the, that somebody finding this bracelet, maybe one of your nephews or nieces, what would you like it to say about you? Uh, well, I, I, I think, uh, I think I perhaps I think in life I I like to feel that I have the priority right, and I feel that love and affection and um, family, I mean those things are very important to me. I mean, I think I guess I'm brought up by my grandmother who always said, if you have love, cold, plain cold water is sweet. And I guess I feel that is the most important thing in life. Absolutely right. And so which charm would you like me to make? Well, I, well, I, I think maybe the, the, the Kogan grass, um, because I also I that's, image of my mother running towards me 
with the the grass surging around her. Okay, I shall really look forward to doing that and um, giving it to you when Thank it's you. when it's done. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to my life in seven charms with me, Anushka Dukas. Please do like, review and subscribe to hear our latest episodes. Thank you to Fairly Media for our audio production.